So how many of you have um, had the experience of dining at the Cheesecake Factory? Just curious. Most of us, right? Most of us have been to the Cheesecake Factory, and it's quite an experience, isn't it? Um, usually goes something like this. You go there, you sit down, and you're usually with somebody, you know, you're uh, with your wife, your partner, whatever, and you sit down and the server comes over. Hey, how are you today? I'm going to be really friendly and helpful because I want a good tip, right? <laughs> and so you get much more honest service in, in England. They don't, they don't tip. It's just not part of the culture. So, you know, if you've got a grumpy server, they, they don't have to be nice to you, you know. But you sit down, <clears throat> get you started with some bread, you bring the bread out. And if you have no self-control like me, you start munching on the bread straight away. And then they bring over the menu, don't they? And let's be honest, the, the menu at Cheesecake Fat, it's not really a menu, is it? It's, it's a food catalogue. I mean, it really is. And you're sitting there and, you know, if you're with your friend or, or your spouse, they're usually like, oh, so, so what are you going to have to eat? Yeah? And I've always wondered... Why do, why, do we, why do we ask one another that question, right? We're always interested in what, whoever you're with, what are they going to eat, right? And I'm always like, you know, I'm, I'm going to eat what I'm going to eat, and you're going to eat what you eat. And, and I've figured it out, at least, at least with Sarah, my wife, and I think I can speak for a lot of women here. I think you ask your husband or your boyfriend or whoever it is, what are you going to eat? Because you're thinking, okay, if they're going to pick the same thing I was going to pick, I'm not going to pick that now. I'll... I'll pick something else because I can have some of his. Right? So I'll, st- I'll still get my little taste sensation from whatever I wanted to eat while having something different. Yeah? And um, I, confession, one of my weaknesses, I am very, I'm very food protected. Pr- protected. I, I, it's, I don't know. It's the hunter thing in me. I don't know, whatever. But, you know, to me it's like, no, you're, you're going to get your meal and I'm going to have mine. Even though you get about three days' worth of food, okay, it's still all mine. And now, to be honest, when Sarah and I were first dating, I suppressed that. Right? Because you're trying to impress the girl, and you know. So she'd be like, oh, what's that? Can I try some of that? And I'd be like, oh, of course you can. <laughs> Killing me, you know. But once I knew she was mine and it was too late, then the truth came out. But you've got this menu, this food catalogue, right? And you start deciding, you're trying to figure out what am I going to eat? And you're already feeling a little full from all the bread you've eaten, right? And um, you you open up the food catalogue, and there's all these different genres. You've got small plates, snacks, appetizers. You've got salads, flatbread, pizza, and lunch. You've got specialities and pastas, fish, seafood, steaks, glam burgers, sandwiches, skinny licious section, breakfast and lunch, you've got sides, and of course you've got the cheesecake and the desserts, right? It's all, all this choice. And you're looking through it, and you, know, you start eyeing the fried shrimp platter, it's looking pretty good, or, or the fish and chips, and then you spot the char-grilled New York steak, and you're starting to salivate a little bit, and, and then you realize these are all about 3,000 calories, and you start thinking, well, I should probably eat healthy and I do need to lose a few pounds. So, so you go to the skinny, licious section, already feeling kind of depressed. And there's the skinny, licious grilled salmon with assorted fresh vegetables. And it's all under 590 calories. And then, but then there's the New York steak grill. 
conflicted. Right? You're so torn. What do I do here? Do I, do I go with the 3,000 calorie steak, which I know is going to taste delicious. It's going to, oh, it's going to be so good. And I'll feel horrible afterwards. Or do I go with the 590 calorie salmon and fresh vegetables, which sounds amazing to Peggy, I know, but <laughs> to the rest of us mere mortals. But you're conflicted, aren't you? You go through this struggle. I don't know what to do here. I, I can pick the stuff that's kind of bad for me, but it's going to taste really good in the moment. Or I can go with the healthy option that actually I'll feel way better afterwards if I do. But you're conflicted. There's this inner struggle going on within you at Cheesecake Factory. Well, in a funny kind of way, that's what Paul's talking about here. But he's not talking about struggling because between what kind of meal you choose. But he's talking about this conflict between what he calls the flesh and the spirit. And it is an inner conflict that we all experience. So the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to spend a little bit of time in some definitions because um, we read a lot about the spirit and the flesh, don't we? In this text here, and in a lot of Paul's writing, he uses these words a lot, the spirit and the flesh. And so it's important we understand what Paul means when he uses those words in this context of this passage that we're looking at this morning. <clears throat> now, when we hear the word flesh, and we see it used in the Bible, our natural tendency is to, to think of things connected to the body, Right? We think flesh, oh, well, it's obviously to do with our bodies. And with regards to sin, we tend to automatically think of sexual sin, don't we? We think, oh, well, the flesh must mean sexual sin. It must be connected to the body and what we do with our bodies. Well, yes, it can definitely have that connotation. It can definitely refer to sexual sin. But the word actually means something far more broader than just that. It's this Greek word Paul uses, the word sarx. It's spelled S-A-R-X, sarx, or sax, if you're from around here. And, and in some translations of the Bible, what you'll see, instead of the word flesh, you'll see the word or the term sinful nature. For example, we, we use the 2011 version of the NIV of the Bible. Well, the 1984 version uses the sinful nature. And I actually think that in this context, that, that's a better translation. Because yes, sarks can literally mean the skin covering our bodies and, and our bodies as a whole. But in this context here, Paul is he's talking about anything in us or about us or in our being that is contrary to the Spirit of God. Okay, that's, that's a better definition of flesh here. It's anything in us or about us or ourselves that is contrary to the Spirit of God. And it's, it's that part of us that still disagrees with the Spirit. So that could, that could be anything. That could be how we act, how we treat others. Um, it could be how we speak. It could be how we think. Because let's be honest, we all have plenty of ungodly thoughts that pass through our minds, don't we? We all have nasty thoughts, vindictive thoughts, evil thoughts that go through our minds, if we're being completely honest. And I, you know, I've said this before, but I often wondered what the world would be like if, if our thoughts like popped up like a speech bubble in comic books. 
and everybody could see exactly what you're thinking, I think we'd be horrified at just how rotten we are. But it's human nature. The flesh is that part of us that, that is kind of is anti-God and opposed to his ways. And we all have an element of this in us, whether we're a believer or not. It's, it's what we call the sinful nature that we're born with. Because we're born separated from God because of sin. You know, some of you um, might be familiar with the fable of the scorpion and the frog. But if you're not, here's how the fable goes. The situation is there's a scorpion and the scorpion comes to a riverbank and he wants to cross over the river. The scorpion realizes he can't swim and then he spots a frog on the riverbank. And he goes to the frog and says, will you carry me across the river? And the frog hesitates and he's, he's rather afraid because the frog says, no, I, you know, if I do that, you might sting me. And the scorpion says to the frog, I'm not going to sting you because if I sting you while we're in the river, that will doom us both. We're both going to die. And so the frog thinks about that and thinks, well, that's a pretty reasonable argument. And so he agrees to transport the scorpion across the river. And as they're about halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. And as they're both dying, the frog says to the scorpion, why did you do that when you knew it would doom us? And the scorpion says, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist the urge. It's in my nature. That's how we are. We, we have a sinful nature in us. There are things in us that we do because it's part of our nature. John Piper, he describes the flesh as, quote, The flesh is the ego which feels an emptiness and uses the resources in its own power to try and fill it. So what Piper's saying there is that we, yes, the ego, the, who you are, the, the self, the person, right, we all feel a certain emptiness in our life. We all do. We're all searching to fill that void. And that emptiness, of course, is, is a lack of God in our life. And what many people do is they, instead of going to the source, instead of going to God, they try to fill that emptiness with anything they can think of instead of God. They use their own resources, their own, their own willpower, and of course they're never fully satisfied or happy because the only thing that can fill that is God. Another commentator says this, the flesh is Paul's term for everything aside from God in which one places his final trust. So when you put your trust and your hope and your faith in anything above God, that's the flesh in action right there. That's putting... You put something before God, that's coming from the flesh, from, from the sinful nature. You could say in a way that when we are operating in the flesh, we are doing things our way rather than God's way. And there's, there's a joke, you know, that says the song that will be on everyone's lips that enters the gates of hell will be, I did it my way. Well, hopefully now you're getting an idea of what flesh means in our context this morning. It's that sinful nature, that opposed to God part of us. Well, what about the spirit? What about the spirit? Well, the spirit here, it refers to the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And what happens when, when we believe in Jesus and we accept and we recognize him as Lord and Savior and we believe in his death and his resurrection? What happens when that 
all happens in our heart. There is a rebirth, a new birth that takes place in us as we become spiritually alive. See, up until that point of accepting Jesus, we are all actually spiritually dead. We may be physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. And, and you know what? Hey, you might be interested in spiritual things. We might call ourselves spiritual. We might read lots of books on spirituality and, you know, meditate and watch TV shows and, and YouTube clips and documentaries about spirituality and listen to podcasts on spirituality. But until Christ enters your life and your heart, you're still spiritually dead. There's no spiritual life in you until Christ comes into your heart. And that's why you might, you might hear this phrase, you might hear the phrase about needing to be born again. Okay, now, when I grew up as a Catholic, right, my, my background is, is Catholic. When I was a Catholic growing up, I was very suspicious of that term born again. I'd always, right, well, you're one of those born again Christians? <laughs> One of those crazy ones, huh? huh? Born again, huh? Born again. What I didn't realize at the time is that that expression, born again, you know where that comes from? It comes from the Bible. And not only that, it comes from Jesus. Jesus is the one who coined that phrase. Right? Some of you might remember the story. This is from John's Gospel, chapter 3. This Pharisee, Nicodemus, he comes at nighttime to talk with Jesus. Okay, he comes sort of incognito, but he talks with Jesus and he's asking Jesus, what must I do to enter, to inherit the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus tell him? He said, you must be born again. Born from above, as the literal translation is, right? Jesus is saying, you must have a, a spiritual awakening. You must come alive in the spirit and this can only come through me. But when we're born again, that's what happens. There is, there is a, a new birth that takes place in us. We become a new person. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you are in Christ, you are a new creation. doesn't matter if you feel that or not. It's, this isn't about feelings, Okay. The reality is, you become a new creation, you become a new person, you're made new, you become spiritually alive as the Spirit of God comes alive in you. And that, by the way, is how we were originally created to be, in the image of God. Physical and spirit, and all connected to God. Now what happens when this spiritual birth takes place, is that your desires... What you're going to find is that your desires and your priorities in life, what's important to you, starts to change in you. And everybody's on a different trajectory on this front, right? For some people, it's like an overnight transformation. It's like they're a different person from one day, and, and then they accept Christ, and it's like, boom, what happened to you? Other folks, I, I would include myself with that, it's a more gradual trajectory. Things gradually change in your life. Your tastes start to change. What gives you joy starts to change, Weird things start to happen. Like you actually want to go to church. All of a sudden you're thinking about reading the Bible. And you're praying more. And you're not, now your prayers aren't just filled with Lord gimme, gimme, gimme and help me, help me. No, they're actually filled with praise and thanksgiving. 
But you know, as all that starts to happen, you start to feel conviction about some of the things going on in your life. You start getting the feeling that maybe some of the things you're doing, they're not good and pleasing in God's eyes. That maybe they're not actually life-giving. You start getting this sense of like, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be sleeping around and hooking up with whoever I want. Maybe I, I shouldn't be looking at porn. Maybe I shouldn't be getting high all the time or getting stoned and drunk all the time. Maybe, maybe being full of anger and bitterness and flying into a rage over the slightest things isn't what God wants for me. And so begins the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. It's the spiritual version of, of do I eat the New York steak or the skinny delicious salmon? All of a sudden, you're not so comfortable with the life you were living and, and some of the things you were doing. That's the spirit stirring up in you. That's the spirit working in your heart. That's the spirit transforming you. You don't feel so serene in your sin anymore. Quoting John Piper again, he said, Serenity in sin is death. Serenity in sin is death. In other words, if you don't feel any conviction about the sin in your life, and if you're oblivious to how it's wrong in God's eyes, then that could be a sign. That's probably a sign that the Spirit's not, a, not alive in you. But you know, if you remember a few weeks ago when we began this series, um, we talked a lot about freedom. And the freedom that comes from the Holy Spirit. And not being a slave to your sinful desires, but having the freedom to serve one another and to love one another. And, you know, it, that's all, it's true. That is all true. But it's also easy to think that once you've got Jesus in your life, all your issues and problems are going to go, go away. Does anybody agree with that statement? Because I know most of you have got Jesus in your life. Would you say, all, have all your problems gone away? Is, is life hunky dory and wonderful? Well, it's because the reality is that even as believers, we still do suffer some bitter spiritual defeats, don't we? We still sin. We still fail. We still fall short. We still miss the mark. And I know for some of us, that you start, you start thinking, wow, am I, am I even saved? Because I keep messing up in this area. I keep doing the same thing. And I keep saying to myself, this is the last time I'll ever do it. And then sooner or later you do it again. And it can get discouraging, can't it? But there's one big difference here between the believer who has the spirit living in them and the non-believer who doesn't. Now we feel conflicted about that area of sin in your life. You feel conflicted and you feel convicted. It's not so comfortable anymore. You're not indifferent to it anymore. And if you struggle, if, the, if there does feel like a battle is going on with you at times, then be encouraged. Because that is a sign that you have the Spirit of God living in you and that Spirit is bringing conviction to your heart. That is one of the big roles of the Holy Spirit is convicts the world of righteousness and he brings conviction into our own hearts. 
So just because you have the Holy Spirit living in you, that doesn't mean that you won't, you're not going to have any bad desires anymore or bad wants that are in conflict to God's will, but it does show that you are at war with them. You're at war. It's a strong word, isn't it? War. But that is part of the Christian life. You see, once you, once you accept Jesus and you're spiritually born and you, and the spirit comes alive in you, you start a war raging within. There's a civil war that's, that goes on between you, between the old self, or the Bible sometimes says the old man, which is that sinful nature, which we still have to deal with, and between this new spiritual nature that loves God and wants to do his will, but still struggles. Does anybody feel that struggle? Yeah, I feel it all the time. Because I've still got the sinful nature in me that wants to do my own thing, wants to do things that are contrary to God. But I also have the spirit in me who loves God and wants to be obedient to his word and to, to do his will for my life. And you know, I want to take us to a really encouraging passage in the Bible. Okay, I want us to turn to... Um, Romans chapter 7. If you've got your pew Bibles, uh, if you've got your own Bible, it's Romans 7, beginning at verse 15. And if you want to grab a pew Bible, it's page 916 in the pew Bibles. But it's Romans 7, beginning at chapter 15. Romans 7, chapter 15. And we're going to read 15 through 25. And this is Paul writing. St. Paul. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. (laughs) What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see the struggle there that Paul's going on? Right? And by the way, thank God. Thank God for that passage in the Bible. Does anybody else feel that? Like, thank the Lord that that passage is there. Because, you know, we're talking, right? We're talking about Paul here. Hebrew of Hebrew, Pharisee of Pharisees, the super apostle, Paul, who, how much of the New Testament did he write inspired by the word of God? And yet he's just like you and me. He has the same struggles back and forth. I do, I do what I don't want to do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Lord, help me. But I know God put that in his word to encourage us, to say, you're not alone. You're not alone. Even, even the best of my people, so to speak, Struggle with this. Paul's describing this wrestling back and forth between wanting to follow the Spirit 
But there is this battle within his sinful nature that doesn't want to do God's will. And this battle between the flesh and the spirit, it's spiritual warfare 101. A lot of churches don't talk about spiritual warfare, right? They, they want to keep away. But the fact is, spiritual warfare is a huge part of our walk and of our faith. Because we are involved in a cosmic battle. Cosmic battle for the souls of men and women. And every day as a follower of Jesus is a battle to choose life by the spirit or life by the flesh. There are are three primary enemies of our souls. You might call them three arenas that spiritual warfare takes place in. Right? The Bible affirms this, and over 2,000 years of church history has affirmed this, that there are three main arenas that spiritual warfare takes place in. It's the devil, the world, and the flesh. Those are the three realms that we deal with, right? So, number one, we're, we're at war with the devil, right? The devil, he's the enemy of our soul. His whole meaning and purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy And that's what he wants for your lives and everybody else's life. He wants death and destruction, misery, chaos, everything evil. That's what Satan wants. And so our warfare there is primarily in the demonic realm, in the spiritual realm, against demonic forces and influences that demons try to wield over us by things like affecting our thought life, trying to suck us into occultic practices. Secondly, we're at war with the world. Okay, that doesn't mean we're to hate the world and our neighbors. No, not at all. But what we are at war with is a spiritual battle with the godless ideologies and philosophies and the systematic structures and power structures that are alive in the world that are anti-Christ. There's a reason that the vast majority of the media is against Christianity. There's a reason why most of the cable news networks are anti-Christian values. There's a reason why sports franchises and Hollywood and all these things are predominantly anti-Jesus. It's because they're part of the system of the world that we're at war with. And then thirdly, there is the third arena that we have been mainly focusing on today, the flesh, right? And this is the one that's closest to home because it involves our personal, our our internal workings. It involves us, the self, our sin nature, and also our new life in the spirit. Okay, time out for a moment. Because at this point, some of you might be thinking, um, so why why would I want to do this whole Christian life thing again? This whole following Jesus, when, when it sounds like it's a whole lot of trouble. It sounds like if I do this, I'm inviting a whole lot of trouble and inner conflict into my life. And, you know, frankly, I'd rather not have that conflict going on. In fact, what sounds way more appealing to me is just to live my life the way I want. I just want to live my life the way I want to. I don't want to have to worry about answering to some higher power, which I don't know if it exists or not. Maybe it does, whatever. But you know what? I don't want to be held accountable or follow any rules or live by any boundaries. No, I mean, doesn't that sound so much more appealing? Live free and die? Sounds 
really good on paper, doesn't it? And how many, how many people live their life like that? Millions, billions. It's just one problem. It's a lie. It's a lie. People are living a lie. People are taking the blue pill day after day. And it's a lie. You see, without the spirit, you're not really free. It's an illusion, just like the matrix. You're actually enslaved. You're actually trapped in bondage to the sin in your life. And hey, let's get real for a moment, right? You know, sin can feel pretty good, can't it? Sin can feel pretty good for a while. Come on, we've all done some sins that were like, well, it kind of likes that. But it's only good for a while. Because it always catches up to you eventually. The sin in your life, it, it always catches up to you eventually. And hey, it might not catch up to you until you die. But it will catch up to you. Sin, sin wouldn't be so attractive if the wages were paid immediately. But ultimately, who, who wants to live a lie? Do you want to live a lie? Some people do. I know if it, the trade-off is like, well, it'll be a nice lie. But most of us, we don't want to live a lie. And, you know, we have a lot of talk in our society, in our culture today, don't we, about authenticity. It's one of our buzzwords, isn't it? I want, I want to be authentic. I want to be living my true authentic self. I want to live out my truth. But how many of us truly want to live authentically? Do we know what that really involves? And as Christians, how many of us want to live truly authentic lives as followers of Christ? I do. I know most of you do. I want the spirit at work in my life. I want the spirit alive in my heart and soul so that I can be truly free. And you know, if that involves some inner conflicts and fighting for what is right and godly, then so be it. Because some things are worth fighting for. I'm going through some struggle and some discomfort. That's okay. Because the truth and the reality that we have to hold on to, that gives us hope, is that this war, this conflict that we have, will not go on forever. It's not going to last forever. This is not an endless war. And you know what? It's not going to end in a stalemate either. No, one day the Spirit will have total victory through Jesus Christ. And so will we. That's our hope. We're in the battle right now. We're in the war. But it's going to end one day and we will be victorious. Because what else, what's the alternative? To ditch Jesus? To live your best life now? No, we have to be like the disciples in John chapter 6. And some of you may recall what's going on here, but in John chapter 6, Jesus, he's just finished a hard teaching. Right? He's talked about, you know, to be my follower, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And of course, he doesn't mean that literally, but they, they, get, they, they get freaked out, they get offended. And it turns a lot of people off because it's a hard teaching. 
Do you realize that? Jesus has some hard teachings. And they're offended, and, and many of them just leave Jesus. You know, he's got a big crowd of disciples, not just the 12. And they're like, you know what, I'm done. This is, this is too much. I'm out of here. And then Jesus, what does he do? He turns to Peter. And he says to Peter, do you want to leave too? Are you, are you going to ditch me as well? And Peter's answer is, it, it's beautiful. And it's what we have to take to heart as we wrestle with these things. Because here's what, here's what Peter says to Jesus. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's no one else to turn to other than Jesus. The only alternative to Jesus and life by the Spirit is to live a lie that will end in death. So we spend a lot of time looking at what does the flesh mean, what does the Spirit mean, but now I just want to address what does walking by the Spirit mean? And this is really the the practical takeaways from, from today, right? Because in our scripture today that, that Phil read for us, right? Paul talks about in verse 16, walking by or in the spirit. And then in verse 18, he talks about being led by the spirit. So what do are, what are those terms mean? Well, walking in and being led by the spirit are actually two sides of the same coin. Because walking tells us that there's a role for us to play. And being led by the Holy Spirit tells us that there's a role for the Holy Spirit to play. And this is how God loves to work with us. It's a collaboration rather than a dictatorship. So you can think of it this way. In terms of walking with the Spirit, we have to be both proactive and receptive. Proactive and receptive. So what I want to do as we, as we, we wrap up here is I want to give us three ways we can be proactive and three ways that we can be receptive in being led by the Spirit. So let's, first of all, let's look at how can we be proactive. And all these three ways involve some kind of walking. So first of all, we can be proactive by walking in faith. Walking in faith. Walking in faith that the Holy Spirit really does reside inside you. If you've, if you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, then the Holy Spirit really does live in you. You have the power and the authority of the living God residing in you. And you just, you've got to own that truth, okay? And we've got to get, got away from this, we've got to get away from this idea that, well, I don't feel it. Feelings are fickle. Sometimes feelings are right and sometimes your feelings are wrong. But we have to trust God's word over our feelings. And God's word tells us that when you accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. You can be sure of that because God's word declares it. So walk in faith. Secondly, walk in power. Right? Walk in power because you, as I mentioned, have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. You have the power. You've been empowered by God to resist and not walk in the ways of the flesh. Do you realize that? We have a power that unbelievers don't have, which is to resist these things. Not through our own strength, but through the strength of God in us. We can resist sin. But sometimes, to put it bluntly... As Christians, we can be wimps. 
We make excuses. Well, I just, I, you don't know what I, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't resist it. The urge was too strong. No. Toughen up. You've got the power of the living God in you. You have the strength and power to resist. Now start owning and claiming. It's like that t-shirt that says, not today, Satan. Walk in faith, walk in power. Thirdly, walk in confidence. Walk in confidence that ultimately the victory of God is ours. Because we belong to God. And anything that you are struggling with will be overcome. Okay, the last three now are for three ways in how we receive or are led by the Spirit. So that was the proactive things that we do. Now let's see, how do we allow the Spirit to work in our lives and lead us? Well, firstly, number one, listen. Listen. So in your prayer time, notice that presumes you have a relationship and a regular conversation with God, okay? In your prayer time, leave space to just listen to God's prompting. Because how often do we, when we pray to God, it's really a one-way conversation. God, please give me this, and I need this, and And we never just be still and know that he is God. Leave room to listen. Pay attention to thoughts and ideas and impressions that come into your mind, especially if they're noble, they're good, they're self-sacrificial. And you get a little feeling of like, I'd have never thought of that. Might be the Spirit speaking to you. Listen. Secondly, allow. Allow God's word to speak to you. And just like listening presumes you're praying, allowing God's word to speak to you presumes that you are reading his word and that you're reading it on a regular basis. Because, you know, it's often through his word, through the Bible, that the spirit will speak to us and lead us. I know you've experienced this, right? A certain sentence or a paragraph will suddenly light up. And come alive in new ways, even though you've read it a hundred times before. That's the spirit leading. That's the spirit revelation and inspiration in your heart. So listen, allow, and thirdly, trust. This is a tough one, especially if you have control issues. Trust the spirit to lead you. You know what that means? That means often letting him take your hand. And you be willing to let him take you wherever he chooses. That takes a tremendous amount of trust and open-mindedness to trust that God is good and to trust that he may take you to unexpected places. Jesus in John 3, 8, he says this, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with anyone born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God's not tame. There's a certain wildness an unpredictability about where the Spirit leads. And we have to be willing to trust the Spirit completely and be open to where he might lead us. Finally, walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit looks a certain way. You'll be able to tell when you meet somebody, if they're walking in and they're being led by the Spirit, because it looks a certain way in a person. And that look has not changed for over 2,000 years. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And that's what we'll be looking at next Sunday. Let's pray.